0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shachman. We hear over and over again that the future belongs to China. Looking at what the Chinese are accomplishing in both infrastructure and technology, it's easy to see why. But what about in human relations and issues of gender? As the Me Too movement reshapes or at the very least recalibrates the nature of sex and work and gender relationships in America, it's worthwhile to look and see how and if these same issues are playing out in China. What we find is not entirely surprising that an entire cadre of well-educated and financially successful women are taking their place in China. The result is that the deep, deep traditions of Chinese society are having to change in ways that are even more difficult than perhaps all the physical changes that China has endured. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Roseanne Lake. She's the Economist Cuba correspondent. She was previously based in Beijing, where she worked for five years as a television reporter and journalist. Her coverage of China has appeared in Foreign Policy, Time, The Atlantic, and Salon. And she's the author of a new book entitled Leftover in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. Roseanne Lake, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. It's great to have you here. How much of the rise of women in China is a reflection of of a global trend, and how much of it is indigenous to the particular circumstances in China?
1: That's a great question. Um, So much of what's happening to women in China is completely on track with what we've seen in developing and developed countries. As women gain more access to education, uh, their timelines for young adulthood change. Marriage and motherhood get pushed back or maybe don't happen at all. We've seen this trend in in most Western countries with the rise of you know more and more women getting married later or not at all, and China's completely on par with that. Um, it, it's also, I mean, we've seen a similar trend in, in other East Asian type of economies. So Japan, South Korea, Singapore, it's been more common in all of these places. You know, women get access to other things. Marriages is, is one of many things that they consider it, and see this feature as the cornerstone of their lives or, or the sole priority. Where things get a little bit different in China are China's characteristics. So one, the fact that there was a one-child policy in China starting in 1979. Although this could have never been predicted, what seems to have happened is, given China's traditional preference for sons, um, many baby girls were aborted or or killed after birth. And this happened primarily in rural areas of the country, where parents, being a bit more traditionally minded, um, really wanted to have a boy, and when they also wanted a boy to be able to help them out working on the farm. Whereas in urban areas, um, it seems parents were a bit more open-minded. They, you know, if they got a girl, it was kind of like, all right, well, you know, maybe we'll keep a girl. If you look at the the, um, the demographic breakdown of the gender imbalance, you'll see it's a lot more acute in rural areas than in urban areas where kids' parents were a bit more open-minded. Okay, we've got a girl, we'll keep a girl. She doesn't have a brother. We don't have a son. We're going to raise her as if she were our son, because she's our sole heir and our family's honor depends on her. So we're going to push her to study and to achieve and to be the best possible person that she can be, which effectively, when multiplied by the many households in which China saw its first generations of only daughters, you get this very well-educated um, class of women who have had unprecedented opportunities and who, of course, given the natural trend of, you know, when this happens to women, no longer see merit and motherhood as as the sole things that define them in their young adult years and have other things that they'd like to do at the same time. So you've got that, and, and when you consider just this one other Chinese characteristic, you've got the one-child policy on the one hand that leads to this gender imbalance, this first generation of only daughters who get this access and, and are able to become what they've become, but you also couple that with the effects of tremendous economic Growth, which happened primarily during their lifetime, and of course, these women or you know people in, in urban areas benefited much more from this growth than people in rural areas, and so that has really just accelerated um, the extent to which they've you know they they're very different from their moms and their grandmothers because their lives are different and the opportunities that they have are completely different from those of, you know, their moms who perhaps grew up during the cultural revolution and didn't have that access to education and and didn't have the ability to spend time figuring out who they were and and who they wanted as a life partner. Um, You know, in those times, the work unit was very prominent. And if you showed up for work, um, without a partner, there usually wasn't housing for unmarried couples. So you were just partnered off with somebody else and and you know, life carried on. So there are many more options now as women all over the world in in developed and developing countries are are having increasingly. Um, so I would say at the time, you know, China is, it's a very poor country, and it's a very wealthy country. And in many ways, as I argue in the book, it's kind of the pitch-perfect diorama for looking at where women stand in the world, because on the one hand, what's happening there mirrors a similar shift we've seen in other countries, but then if you look at the lives of you know, women who are not as well off in China, their lives may resemble more the lives of, of women in, in India or parts of sub Saharan Africa. So you can really kind of see you know, the, different, the different situations of women around the world Based um, on just the women who are in China, which you know is, is actually home to the world's largest population of women for now, at least. Um, so it's just, it, it was a fascinating place to, to study
0: and, and to report on. How much of it was shaped by Western influence? Well, there's a huge population of Chinese students studying
1: in the U.S. There's 330,000 students um, studying, Chinese students studying in the U.S., and many of them are women. And so, of course, once you leave China and you're exposed to a different culture, um, you have greater access to different media, right, to movies, to television shows, and to just classmates, of course, that's going to play into um, your idea of sort of how you want to be when you're in your 20s and, and the sort of life that you're looking for. But I wouldn't blame it exclusively on, on Western exposure. I mean, that certainly played a part. Um, when I was living in China, the Big Bang Theory was by far one of the most popular <laughs> television shows um, in China, which was the sort of U.S. television show. And, and, you know, young Chinese students, they understand American cultural references. But um, I think more than anything, uh, this shift is, is due to just a rise of individual in what used to be a fiercely collectivist society. For the first time, I mean, a lot of these kids, they are only children, and they've been given a whole lot of resources. And so they're a bit more individualistic in how they choose to go about things. Um, you know, there maybe instead of taking strong recommendations for what they should study in college, maybe there's a bit of pushback and they choose to study, you know, a career or, you know, prepare for a career that they're more interested in. Um, so I think it's a combination of factors, right? The idea of being abroad, having that exposure and that sort of autonomy being far from, you know, the influence of parents who are trying to sort of prod you into the sort of life that they'd like you to have. Maybe, a, you know, a career as an engineer or natural sciences or something and then married shortly after. Um, They're far away from those traditional networks, but also, yeah, just seeing things differently because they're exposed to to other cultures outside of China.
0: Talk a little bit about how the men in China of that generation have have understood this or pushed back against it.
1: For the men, it's tricky um, because... You know, as I talked about earlier, you've got these men in rural areas who are quite poor. They've not experienced the same economic growth as China has, you know, people in urban areas have. And as a result for them, it's actually very tricky to find a wife because... They are in surplus, right? There are 20 million more men. There will be 20 million more men of marriage age than women in China by 2020, which means that something like one in every five Chinese men, will be it will be numerically impossible for him to find a wife. And this is especially true for men in these areas because they don't have resources to bring to to a marriage. So if if you know these men are in short supply, parents are thinking, well, you know, we're not going to let our marriage, our daughter get married unless um, you know, unless it's a match that we consider is favorable. And so because men kind of have to compete amongst one another to attract a wife because there's just not enough women to go around, monetary resources become very important. And this has stoked, you know, a, an industry inspired buying from other countries to attempt to, you know, bring back the numbers of, of, of um, to, to attempt to meet the, the the supply that is just not there um so there's buying from places like thailand and vietnam it's also stoked very unfortunately an industry for bride mapping. because there is a market in china of, of you know men who find it very hard to get married and need to sort of outsource their wives um then of course there are men who are born in urban areas who are in a very different situation um on paper they may be equivalent of many of the women that i describe in the book so you know, born in a interrelative affluence or, you know, families that are, are relatively middle class or well-off, um, some education, exposure abroad, um, maybe bilingual. And for these men, uh, they really, you know, essentially they have their pick of a the lot, right? They can, pretty much any woman in China would be keen to marry a man with those characteristics, at least on paper. Now, it's, it does seem that there are men in China who are, are a little bit lost in how quickly um, the role of women Right? So if they're looking at what their mothers were to their families as kind of a model of what their future wives might be for their for their homes, um, you know, for their lives, it, it gets a little tricky because it's so different, right? What was expected of women when when their moms was growing were growing up is, is very different from what women who are currently on the marriage look for. There was actually a Spanish demographer who I cite in my book who said, um, and this wasn't specific to China, but I think it rings particularly true in China, who said Um, men are looking for women who no longer exist, and women are looking for men who have yet to exist. And I thought that kind of perfectly nailed this idea that, you know, men maybe want a more domesticated or a more traditional model of woman, and it seems like there are fewer and fewer of those types of women in China. And women are perhaps looking for, you know, a bit more egalitarian husband who's willing to share things more, you know, the burden of, of taking care of children and housework and everything else, do that a bit more equally. And there aren't quite too many of those yet. And, and this is purely anecdotal, but I can give you an example of one of the mm-hmm. characters or one of the one of the men that I interviewed as part of the book. Um, he was, you know, he was a catch on paper, well educated, good job in finance, bilingual, all of those things. And I said, you know, what do you look for in a wife or in in a woman? And he said, well, I think that women should be like plain yogurt, so that men can flavor them as they'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of, you know, rather. By by his idea, but very grateful that he shared it with me because it was enlightening. It helped me understand that, you know, this is the position that someone were coming from. And, and he just explained to me, you know, a woman that has too many ideas before Brexit, she just makes my life more complicated. I earn a good salary. I know where I want to live. I know where I want to work. And it's just easy to be able to decide those things on my own and not have to take into account the viewpoint of someone else. And so when we had lunch that day and we were doing that interview, he was actually on his way back to his hometown for his bachelor party because he had just gotten engaged. (laughs) And he really had me wondering if he was engaged to a woman or a dairy cow based on his
0: requirements
1: (laughs) for how women should be.
0: To what extent has this been an issue that the government has taken notice of? And if so, to what extent has it shaped any public policy in China? Well,
1: there's now a two-child policy in China. It, it's affected, it, was, it took effect two years ago, and certainly it's a response to all of this. I mean, the Chinese government has noticed that um, its numbers for, for population growth are just not what they should be. The population is shrinking, it's getting older, and that has a whole lot of economic repercussions because it means that you have fewer and fewer young people, young workers paying taxes to, to, to support an increasingly older population that, you know, have a pretty long lifespan. And so to remedy this, and also because they're aware that you know, much of what China has achieved has been due to its power in numbers, and the fact that you know, those numbers may be shrinking has, has economic concerns, um, this, this two-child policy was, was instituted. I don't think it was, oh, let's give our women greater reproductive freedoms. I think it was very much, we need more babies. Um, we need to tell women that, you know, that, that they need to have more babies for them. And And um, based on numbers that have come out, it seems that the number of of babies that were expected with the modified policy, are the number of babies born are actually nowhere near um, the number that the government had hoped would be born. Um, so essentially, it's emerged that you know fewer than expected women have, have had children. And actually, I've heard from some people, um, midwives, and, and, and people who work at hospitals, um, and these are you know higher end hospitals. So the numbers could may not be representative of, of what's going on in China as a whole. But I have heard that um, more older women than than expected have had children, which has led actually to a number a higher number of birth um, companies. And I don't think any of this was really planned for when the two-child policy came to be. It was kind of maybe rather naively assumed that, okay, there's a two-child policy. Everyone's going to rush to have two children. Um, But that hasn't happened, and it's been for various reasons. I mean, on the one hand, um, the whole premise of what I argue, you know, you have a rising population of leftover women, women who are, you know, beyond the age of 27 and they're not married. And and if they're not married by – if they're not getting married, if they're getting married later or not at all, obviously that's going to have an impact on how many children they have. Notably because um, it is very difficult to have a child outside of Wedlock in China. There are very high fees for anyone who does. And a child's residence permit or hukou comes through its father, so it's very hard for that child to access education and and, and all sorts of basic things if their if his parents are not married. Um, it's also very complicated for women in China to seek out uh, fertility treatments, namely um, egg freezing. So one would think, you know, if China's government is 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 trying to increase birth rates. Um, a two child policy is is perhaps a a good step. I would say eradicating the policy altogether would maybe be a better one. Um, but doing things to make it easier for, for women to have, you know, children on a longer time scale would also make sense. But as of now, um, unless a woman is married and has an illness that is, um, expected to impede her fertility, she's not able to freeze her eggs, which has actually stoked a huge industry for, um, women, Chinese women coming to the U.S. To have their eggs frozen. This is something that is, you know, becoming more and more common. And actually, someone described it to me as, as you know, um, and you know, we get a manicure and we get our eggs frozen. It's just one of those things that you do with your girlfriend um, as part of, you know, of a plan for the future. And so, it's it's certainly a concern um, that the government has. Um, and I think there's probably no clear answer, I mean, you can't suddenly oblige every, every woman in China to have two children. I do think it's looking pretty likely that by March, the next time the Communist Party gets together, that um, the two-child policy will probably be abolished um, altogether. I mean, this is what some demographers and, and people who are closer to this science have said. Um, so it's it's a serious concern, and um, there are certainly many policy adjustments that can be made to to increase birth numbers. but they haven't really been rolled
0: out as yet. What's transpired in terms of women, some of these women that we're talking about rising to leadership positions in, in sciences, in corporations, even in politics?
1: What is it? Well, I mean, what we're seeing is there are more and more Chinese women, and you see, I mean, I was just in San Francisco this weekend, and, and it's incredible and really heartening to hear about, you know, how many women are in the venture capital space, mm-hmm. um, and how Chinese women who sort of work in both places, in Silicon Valley and in China, talk about how their impression is it seems easier for you know women run businesses and and just women in general to be involved in this venture capital space. So they're investing in you know artificial intelligence and robotics and and things that we we probably don't have as high of a percentage of, of women in, in the U.S. invested in or, or involved in or just getting capital um, to you know to start pushing products of that nature. So you really do see that. I think Chinese women really excel in the sciences um, in that regard because there's just this idea, I mean they're involved in the space, right? They're not afraid to make money and, and they're involved. They're, they have you know prominent roles um, as far as that goes. That hasn't necessarily translated to politics and part of that may be that it is very hard. To, to rise in the ranks of the Communist Party. Uh, we see that was made harder over the weekend. Um, Xi Jinping is, is now going to be in power until 2023. So any you know any any hopes of having a woman in office um, before then are, are, are very severely dashed. Um, and actually, there were some jokes going on on social media, one that I really loved. There was a young person saying, um, you know, they were talking about the marriage pressure that they were fielding from their parents. And they said, oh, well, you know, my parents said that I needed to marry before Xi Jinping's term is up, and now I've got... You know a whole lot more time to remain single because he's going to stick around so (laughs) you know I don't see that really translating to the political space but of course the private sector is is tightly linked to what happens and I think as women you know it's not easy it's certainly not easy there's there's some very seriously entrenched, um, you know, discrimination and, and things that we see everywhere else, you know, talking about China's situation, not being unique to China. That these are, these are, you know, universal problems for women in the workforce. But I think as women make more and more of a footprint in the private sector, um, that may help to the skills eventually.
0: And the private sector has been more accepting overall? Yes, I would definitely say so. I mean, it it also helps that, you know, some of
1: the women are born into families that own businesses. And because they're only daughters, who else did they pass this business on, or this inheritance, or the family wealth, right? And because these women are also they're educated abroad, you know, many of them, right? They have been they've been primed and poised. They are poised to take over family businesses and, and to excel, you know, in in the, in the private sector on their own. Um, There's you're definitely seeing more and more of that. I mean, Chinese women are, are ambitious. They're you know they're getting higher education. There are numbers of numbers of women getting you know GMATs in this taking DMAT and, and getting MBAs, are right up there with the boys. So they really are, um, you know, that, that footprint is expanding and then it's going to be a very important part of China's story going forward.
0: And is this similar in terms of what's happening to other Asian countries as well? Do, are other Asian nations around China dealing with similar kinds of problems in terms of their traditions and their issues?
1: They are and they aren't. So this is something that I also, you know, towards the end of the book, I start making comparisons with Japan, South Korea, and Singapore. Other Asian tiger economies where, you know, the economy took off very quickly and the status of women changed or the expectations of women changed in a very short time. A country that hasn't managed this transition very well is Japan. Um, it's no secret, Christine Lagarde has brought it up often, that, you know, Japan's economy is not what it should be because it has failed to incorporate women in the formal economy as it should. Um, it's not uncommon for a woman in Japan to have a child and then check out of the workforce for 13 years to take care of it because there's some stigma associated with, you know, outsourcing childcare, even if it's to parents. And so Japan's economy has suffered. I mean, when you have half of your workforce taking care of one child, it's not necessarily the most productive way, um, to have women, you know, reaching their full economic and professional potential and then by extension just contributing to household spending, right? To 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 what what a household income and by extension consumption tax, right? Um so Japan hasn't fared so well. South Korea is slightly better. Um, but, you know, the researchers that I, um, that I consulted for the book um, make it very clear that there's still not a model. Um, there's still not really, a, you know, uh, an example of, of too many women in Korea who have managed to um, have rewarding careers while still, you know, um, tending to all, the, all of the things at home and um, just, being, you know, fulfilling that, that role of mother that's expected of them. Um, so I would say, and of course, Japan and, and Korea are places where women are very well educated. So I would say that in this regard, China has a tremendous advantage because since the Cultural Revolution, which certainly had its flaws, uh, women have been involved in the formal economy in ways that they've not been in other places. And they're certainly involved now. Um, They're very productive members of it. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, they were the factory girls, right? There's an excellent book by Leslie Chang that talks about the huge economic importance of this population of women when it came to China's story of being the manufacturing capital of the world that story has now changed, right? A lot of, you know, the narrative for young women is, is not so much centered on smokestacks because a lot of manufacturing in China is, is migrated to other places. It's too expensive. Wages are too expensive. And so it's, it's been passed along to places like Vietnam or Thailand. Or, you finishing their manufacturing China is switching to a more knowledge and service-based economy, And for that, um, you know, when you think about, the sort of talent pool that it has to be able to meet the demand for these new positions in the knowledge economy, women are a huge part because they've been educated and, and you know, they're qualified to accept these roles. So I don't see them as, you know, being excluded from them as, or, or not being involved, suddenly not being involved in the formal economy as they've been in other East Asian tiger economies. And, and that's why I'm more optimistic for China's um, economic growth in the future.
0: Roseanne Lake, her book is Leftover in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. Roseanne, I thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you.